Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallden, and today we are going to talk to historian Robert Coots about his newly released book on historic sites in Manitoba and Saskatchewan. Our guest today worked as a historian for Parks Canada for over 32 years, during which time he visited the historic sites which are the subject of his new book, Authorized Heritage, Place, Memory, and Historic Sites in Prairie Canada, published by the University of Manitoba Press. As his retirement project, he went back to university to do a PhD and wrote a history thesis out of which this book is based. Robert Coots is now the chief editor of a new journal called Prairie History with a broad mandate to publish the histories and stories of the three prairie provinces, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta, along with the borderland histories associated with the northern U.S. Plains. The first issue was released in winter 2020, just as the COVID-19 pandemic was taking off. Robert, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks, Greg. It's uh, very nice to be with you. The uh, first issue of Prairie History was published literally, I think, a week before the lockdown here in uh, Manitoba. Prairie History is published by the Manitoba Historical Society, and it it uh, follows the uh, journal Manitoba History, which I actually edited for quite a number of years. And uh, the idea for the new journal came in part because of the disappearance of Prairie Forum, which uh, you had mentioned to me uh, uh, in an email. And uh, also a few years ago, the end of the journal Saskatchewan History. So there was a real hole in, uh, in the publishing um, uh, historical material uh, material related to the West as a region. So I felt it important that authors be provided a vehicle for Pan Prairie or Pan Western articles or articles related to the histories of Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and the U.S. borderlands. So I think it's, it's um, important to note that uh, we are different from a journal like Prairie Hit Forum in that we combine scholarly peer-reviewed articles and book reviews with shorter, more popular articles, as well as uh, material related to um, heritage issues across the West. So in a sense, we're trying to co- uh, capture multiple audiences, uh, scholarly audiences, popular, and people who are interested in conservation. I really want to say congratulations to the Manitoba Historical Society and to yourself for getting this off the ground. I think there's a real vacuum in terms of possibilities for history of the prairies and putting in that larger context of sort of the history of the plains more generally is fantastic. So congratulations. Yeah, and I should say, when, when we talk about prairie history, we're covering three provinces, but we're not just covering the prairies as a sort of geographical entity. We're also covering the northern prairies as well. So I guess we're defining prairies as a, a, a political, um, you know, 
three provinces, but also including the north in that, not just the prairies. So back to your book. In the Canadian context, what exactly is an authorized historic site? In other words, who or what exactly makes it an official historic site? Well, uh, so my title, Authorized Heritage, is intended to describe how a, a you know a sort of official heritage designation designation is achieved. Um, the book, I think, asks critical questions about why certain places um, are designated and why others are not. Uh, do perceptions of importance of these places by government, by communities? and by individuals change over time. So um, I guess my overarching argument in the book is that um, these places that I'm calling authorized heritage places are considered to be official heritage by governments related to an authorized heritage discourse that is almost always based on the uh, conventional messages that are part of national narratives and uh, colonialist views of, of the past. Um, you know, official his, historic sites are, are designated by governments at the federal level by the Historic Sites and Monuments Board of Canada, at the provincial level by um, historic site and advisory boards, and at the municipal level by uh, local heritage boards. So in general, authorized heritage refers to the process of how the dominant heritage narrative is achieved. How do governments decide which spaces and places are significant and which are not? And I should say, with this book, uh, as the title suggests, uh, or the subtitle suggests, that I'm looking at places in terms of what is commemorated and what is not. Uh, and, and how that's done. I'm not looking at, you know, commemoration of individuals or commemoration of events. And I think that's, uh, that's critical to the idea of authorized heritage. Well, you write uh, about Fritz Panicka describing the rise of the heritage priesthood that was based on the growth of heritage agencies and their bureaucracies. Uh, between the mid-1960s and the early 1990s. Uh, so who actually writes the words for these plaques uh, that are in historic sites, who decides there, in a sense, how the historic site will be presented to the audience seeing it? And um, are the plaques and the words written on them rewritten or revised based on new historical evidence or changing interpretations over time? Well, the, uh, there's a number of themes there. Uh, first of all, I, I should say the Panica phrase is a good one. Um, uh, I, it's interesting that Panica himself, who, who I know, is uh, or was for many, many years uh, a manager uh, at Parks Canada, and then at Alberta Historic Sites. So he has a background in, in public history. Um, you know, uh, plaques, or at least federal plaques, are usually written by Parks Canada historians in Ottawa, although uh, I did write over the years a few of my own 
um, uh, uh, and, and there, of course, they have to be approved by the Historic Sites and Monuments Board of Canada. Uh, the process is the same for the province uh, plaques, uh, provincial plaques. They are written by provincially employed public historians, and then uh, you know approved by their advisory boards. So your question about are they revised and changed and all that kind of thing. Technically, at the federal level, uh, plaques can be rewritten and replaced. And, uh, you know, in the book, I detail some of these in the West. Uh, however, the process, uh, from my own experience, is extremely cumbersome and bureaucratic. While changing interpretation might lead to a new plaque, being approved by the board. My experience um, has been that the board is very reluctant to approve a replacement plaque unless there are some glaring errors of fact or the accepted historical interpretation is very much out of date. And I would add to that that um, it has to be very much out of date <laughs> for the board to uh, approve a new plaque. Um, so that's why you don't see a lot of revised plaques in uh, Western Canada, or, or it's probably throughout the country. And so over the last hundred years, I uh, I believe the plaque at Batoche was changed about three times. Is that correct? Yes. I detail this in the book. The original plaque from the 20s, was uh, not surprisingly very anti-Métis. Uh, and that was actually, uh, interestingly, protested at the time by not only the Métis, but by the church, Catholic church in the area. Uh, and so then uh, it took a, quite a number of years, if I remember my own dates here, before that plaque was uh, revised uh, but it it still was um, very much related to uh, a kind of a centralist Canadian viewpoint of the Northwest uh, resistance and how that was interpreted. And then um, a third, I believe it was a third plaque in the 70s, did rewrite it to incorporate... Um, not only Riel into it, but also uh, the Métis community. And that was a big, I was involved at the time in that whole thing, although I wasn't a major player. Uh, my colleague, Deanne Paymont, was the uh, major player in that. Um, that. That argument that to uh, spend time on the Métis community not just before uh, the events of 1885, but but more importantly afterwards, that how that commu community survived. Uh, uh, she was a big part of that in her writing uh, for Parks Canada and her later book, um, and um, so th that that site did evolve over time in terms of the way the board plaque the site. But again, we're talking from the 1920s to, um, I guess, the late 70s, you know, so it was a while. 
Well, you make the argument that uh, heritage should be seen as, and I quote your words, as less a depiction of the past and the present, and more as the persistence of the past and the present. You, you also describe visiting an historical site as an archive of the feet, using Simon Shama's wonderfully evocative phrase. So tell us a bit more what you mean by this. Well, um, I, I think that phrase, uh, the uh, depiction of the past and the present, and the persistence of the past and the present is sort of uh, at the essence of my book, really. Um, um, so I think it's an important concept that I developed this whole theme throughout the book. Uh, so here, when I'm talking about the depiction of the past and the present, I'm generally talking about an, uh, a manufactured heritage. Buildings are reconstructed, landscapes are manipulated, all of it to meet sort of visitor expectations, anticipations, and comforts. Um, there's little authenticity, I guess I could say. Uh, so that can be a vague concept, but what is authentic and what is not. Um, and Heritage Place is largely uh, contrived to meet what uh, the American historian John Uri called, and I love this, the tourist gaze, he called it that historic sites give back to the visitor what they expect in a place. So that's the um, what I would call the um, fiction of the past and the present. The persistence of the past and the present is heritage that is not manufactured. It is honest, authentic. I use the phrase, it's just there. Some might say, well, what does that mean? But it's, it's just as it is, and more importantly, as it's evolved, you know, uh, it isn't contrived like a place like Lower Fort Gary. It is a real heritage place. Now, you know, having said that, uh, York Factory has had some changes to the buildings there, but for the most part, it has been left alone you know, in part perhaps because of its isolation. But, um, you know, I think that's the difference between uh, the depiction of the past and the present as in, in a contrived way. Like, this is what we want visitors to see. And this is how we think they should see the past, as opposed to a site where it's just, here it is. Here's the site, and it's evolved over time, of course, as all places do. But this is this is the reality of this place, you know. Right, and we'll go through some of these uh, sites, at least as examples, in a second. But I want to go back to what Simon Shama said and what you have said in this book. Oh, right. About the difference between, you know, in a sense, researching from a desk and researching through the visiting of a site, an archive of the feet. It's in his book, uh, Landscape and Memory, which is a fabulous book. I recommend that to everyone. He uses that phrase, archive of the feet. And, um, you know, it, it's a great phrase. Um, uh, it, it nicely sums up the concept of the, the, the truly um, understanding of place. One has to be there 
to walk the ground, you know, to uh, understand the topography uh, and to some degree to get away from what he calls, quote, the bell jar of academic convention, uh, look but don't touch. I, I, I love that quote from him as well. You know, I did get, uh, in, in, in colleagues I talked to, uh, specifically geographers, I did get a bit of a pushback on that, that you couldn't understand place unless you had actually been there. So the archive of the feet is walking these places. And I did that with so many of the places that I talk about in the book. Um, you know, Sierra Scully, uh, many, many times I walked that whole area uh, York Factory, of course, um, uh, Batoche, the, the very first site that I was involved with. And uh, that was sort of the place where, you know, the landscape really kind of came home to me uh, in terms of the, um, well, not just the topography, but the way the landscape had this kind of historical feel to it. So at Batash, I remember the, 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 the remnants of these shallow uh, rifle pits from 1885. Um, I remember the, the remnants of the Carlton Trail that were there. And I just loved these uh, pieces of, uh, of the landscape uh, uh, of the past. So I... Um, I, that's why I, I love uh, Shaman's phrase, archive of the feet, because that's where you learn. Yes, you know, um, and as my book uh, uh, shows, I mean, you know, you, you, you uh, learn a lot from uh, archives and from secondary sources and all that sort of stuff, usual academic stuff. Um, but I guess the difference in my book is that I walked all these places. That's right, and, and it makes it makes quite a difference in terms of how you present these places. So, can you tell us a little bit more about one of the pre-conduct uh, indigenous sites that you mentioned, Seahorse Gully? Describe it to us and uh, what we learned from that historic site. Well, just by way of background, for people who don't know, Sierra Scully, because uh, it's not that well known of a, of a site, it's located on the Churchill West Peninsula across uh, the river from the town of Churchill uh, in northern Manitoba. Um, it's home to uh, an indigenous cultural settlement that can be dated back by archaeologists 4,000 years. So we're talking from pre-Dorset peoples um, right up to modern Inuit. Um, uh, the, you know, the site is marked by tent rings from different periods, uh, grave sites, cache sites, kayak rests, and all that sort of thing. Um, it was recognized to be of significance in 1969 by the Historic Sites and Monuments Board. So it's it's a uh, a national historic site uh, on its own. However, um, nearby there are European sites like Prince of Wales Fort, very close on Eskimo Point, as they call it. 
that's the West Peninsula, and then Fort Churchill to the uh, south, uh, and some other European sites. So they're all marked, and Prince of Wales Fort is a National Historic Site. And yes, Seahorse Gully is a National Historic Site, but I guess the issue that I write about in the book is that when you're talking about 4,000 years of almost continuous human habitation from pre-Dorset to European, this is, this is a region, and, it, and we're talking a fairly small area here, just a couple of miles. Um, uh, you know, this is something I, I think unique in Canada, and yet we haven't done that. You know, we isolated, but now I should say that part of that is in order to protect the resources of that area. But I think the whole area is uh, just so significant. And years ago, um, the government of Canada put forward the Churchill West Peninsula as a World Heritage Site, or, or, or sorry, was going to, and then it was pulled back because um, UNESCO uh, thought that um, we, they should get uh, places from uh, other third world countries, that kind of thing. And that was too bad. But I, I think that, the, and I write about it in the book, that the Churchill West Peninsula it's just one of the greatest sites in Canada, I think. And I, like I said, I've walked, you know, I obviously spent time, time at Prince of Wales Ford. I've walked through Sierra Scully. I've walked through the more modern Inuit, you know, 20th century Inuit sites that are in the area and that sort of thing. And it's just fabulous. I love it. In your second chapter, you talk about the sites associated with the fur trade. Can you tell us about Lower Fort Garry and York Factory, both of which you dealt with a great deal, both in your time in Parks Canada and in your subsequent research? Yeah, well, I, I did uh, spend a lot of time on both of those sites and research and, uh, and, and of course, visits to the sites. Um, I guess I would see Lower Fort Garry and York Factory as almost kind of polar opposites in in some way, not in all ways, but in some ways. I see uh, Lower Fort Gary as, um, um, you know, a, a kind of a contrived site. So you had these heritage buildings that had survived um, from the 1830s and uh, that sort of thing. And of course, with their proximity to Winnipeg, you know, it became natural that Lower Fort Garry would become a, a, a very uh, significant tourist site. And for a time in the 50s, it, it was the number one visited site in Western Canada. I think there was something like 300,000 visitors went to the site in uh, the late 50s. Um, but then, you know, that declined quite dramatically until I think they're around... 35,000, 40,000 uh, right now. But, you know, it's not about visitation. I I, um, I just think that Lower Fort Gary is a very, as I said, a contrived site. Um, you know, the buildings have been restored and I'll put slash reconstructed in there quite a bit. The walls, the same. 
Uh, I think the landscape has been manipulated to make it um, uh, friendly to visitors, uh, the pathways and all that sort of stuff. So it's a very manipulated site and it's, it, it's manipulated um, to make it a tourist site, I think. You know, it has a large interpretive center and all that sort of thing that goes with uh, big sites like Lower Fort Gary. Um, but I, I just, I don't feel a sense of history there. They have a living history program, which they've had for many years. Uh, so you have like basically uh, university students dressed up in costume, uh, pretending to be certain historical characters who were at the fort. Um, you know, and for a time, I guess years ago, it was done reasonably well because they could put a lot of resources into it. And then when government cutbacks started in the 90s um, and into the 2000s, that that, that program really just uh, declined. And um, I, I have to say, and this is a personal thing on my part, I've never been a fan of living history. I don't like, you, you know, people, young or old, dressing up in costume, pretending to be historical figures. And at one time, they used to talk in the first person, you know, like, I am Eden Colville, the governor, and that sort of thing. Um, I just found it phony, um, contrived, as I said earlier. And, um, you know, I, I just don't see, I've never seen Lower Fort Gary, right from my, the early days where I was going out there, uh, and that goes back a long way, I just never saw it as a really legitimate sort of site. I saw it as like, um, you know, I, I don't want to say Disney World because that's, that's going too far. Well, I was about to say that, and I wanted you to contrast that with York Factory. Yeah, yeah. Well, see, York Factory, I think, is the, as I said uh, before, is sort of the polar opposite. Uh, York Factory is a place that feels like, you know, real. Uh, you know, th now there has been some work done on the site, in particular with the depot building, and they built a, a fair, overly large residence there, but uh, and too close to the historic site. However, those things aside, when you go to York Factory, you feel like you're in a real place. When you walk through the cemetery there, that actually could date back to the 18th century. Um, it just feels uh, like no other place you've been to in, in uh, that I've been to in Canada. And, um, you know, I'm biased because I've done a lot of work on York Factory and some publishing and that sort of thing. But um, it's, it's just, uh, as I wrote, I think in the book, um, it feels like a place that when you go to it, that the original residents just left. Um, so, you know, so I, that, that's one of the things I like about it. Now, the, 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 the criticism I make in the book is that Parks Canada's interpretation of places like York Factory tend to focus on, well, the very early French-English conflict in the 17th and uh, 18th century for places like York Factory. And then they do talk about York Factory's role in the fur trade. 
one of the points I bring up in the book is that um, the, what they don't talk about is indigenous people uh, at the site. And in particular, they don't talk about what happened to, to the Cree uh, in the York Factory region after York Factory declined, say, in the 1870s, 18, late 1860s, uh, 1870s, uh, what happened to those people and the poverty that they experienced and the starvation, literal starvation that people in that area talked about. So rather than just focusing on, you know, um, the positive sort of the European York Factory and its pinnacle of European uh, significance, in Western Canada, and it was, I, I should mention, uh, you know, the administrative headquarters for the Hudson Bay Company, uh, and it was the leading uh, uh, depot for furs and, and uh, trade goods and all that throughout Western Canada. So the, the, the commemorative focus tends to be on that and not on uh, what happened afterwards. So it's sort of a good news type of story. I don't use that phrase in the book. It's like, here's where the Europeans, there was supremacy. And then we're not going to talk about the period of decline and the impact that it had on local people. And, uh, and I think that's unfortunate with the place. And it's something that probably could be addressed in the future. Now, can you talk about or provide an example of one of the sites associated with Euro-Canadian settlement, as a quick example? Well, um, New Bergthal, I don't know if uh, people are familiar with this. It's a very small village in uh, southern Manitoba, a uh, Mennonite uh, village, and it's, uh, it's a historic uh, street uh, the, it's a street village. So it's a main street. As, as it was developed in the in the 19th century, um, late 19th century, as a, a main street with uh, a narrow sort of similar to river lot sort of uh, uh, farms coming off the main street, and then house barns, as the Mennonites uh, call them. So that's a combination of a house and a barn together, you know, on on the facing the street. And then the land behind them. What I love about that site is that the local people take tremendous pride in uh, their being a national historic site, um, and and they take tremendous pride in maintaining, um, you know, the, the heritage character uh, of, of of that town. And uh, you know, they don't reconstruct buildings or do that sort of stuff. They preserve what they have as best they can. Now, yeah, things have changed over the years because it is a place that people live in, but um, they've done a, a really wonderful job of, of preserving the heritage character of that, uh, of that area and, uh, and to commemorate uh, ethno-religious settlement in uh, Western Canada. Well, Robert, there's so many other sites we could go through today if we had time. So I encourage our listeners to pick up your book and uh, really spend the time uh, visiting the historic sites 
through your book and then hopefully in person at some point in their life. So thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Greg. It was a pleasure. My guest today was Robert Coots. He is the author of Authorized Heritage, Place, Memory, and Historic Sites in Prairie Canada, published by the University of Manitoba Press in 2021. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. You can become a subscribing member and help support the preservation and publication of documentary history in Canada. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. We want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of Ottawa Press, and UBC Press. My name is Greg Marshallden. This podcast was produced by Jessica Schmidt.